lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. So thanks for being with us today. We've got a really interesting show today. And we've got Dr. Carolyn Coker-Ross, and she is an internationally known author, speaker, expert, and pioneer of intergenerational trauma's effect on one's body, brain, and beliefs. She's a graduate of Andrew Wiles Fellowship Program in Integrative Medicine. Dr. Ross is the CEO of the Anchor Program, which is an online coaching for food and body image issues, including binge eating, substance use disorder, and emotional stress eating. She's a former head of the eating disorder program at the internationally renowned Sierra Tucson, and Dr. Ross is currently a consultant for United States treatment centers that want to include her unique integrative medicine approach to help clients recovering from eating disorders, substance use disorders. She's the author of three books, and the most recent is the Food Addiction Recovery Network. Dr. Ross, thanks for being with us today. Hi, it's great to be with you, Lee. Sounds like that you've done an awful lot of work in the eating disorder area. And we all know that there's a lot of trauma associated with those eating disorders. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I think, been the biggest breakthrough in my time in medicine is the recognition that trauma has such an important impact on the development of eating disorders and addictions. So the eating disorders and addictions, in a way, I kind of see them as the same thing. Um, in a way, do you? <laughs> well, I, I mean, there certainly are definitely um, the, the very similar underlying root causes being trauma. And then from there, you know, you can also see similarities in terms of how people use, how and why people use food or substances, which often is to deal with uncomfortable feelings or memories or, you know, other things in their lives. So I always say it's not about the substance. It's really about how you use the substance, whether it be food or drugs or alcohol. So in that way, there are a lot of similarities. There's a lot of dispute as to whether or not there's any uh, withdrawal symptoms. For example, if you, you know, with the, the whole sugar is bad for you thing of the past decade, uh, there are some researchers who feel that sugar is addictive and that it can even cause withdrawal symptoms, at least in animals. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of overlap between those two. Well, and sugar is an interesting um, subject for me because a lot of people, sugar is a neurotoxin. There's no debate around that. But some people metabolize it well, and they don't feel like it negatively impacts their brain or their body in any way. And other people absolutely are aware Oh, had too much sugar, got to stay away from the sugar. And I mean, it's in everything we eat. It's yeah. hard to stay away from. Well, I mean, if you think about alcohol, it's no different. Both alcohol and food uh, work on the uh, dopamine reward center, 
which is where we get our pleasure from. So there are many people, like millions and millions of people who drink alcohol but don't become um, addicted to alcohol. And so it's, again, it's not about the substance. The same with sugar. People, lots of people hate sugar as much as they want and they don't have problems with it. So I think a lot of it has to do with this underlying history of trauma as well as genetic factors and other factors that make some people more vulnerable to those things, just like more vulnerable to the effects of social media. You know, we have a lot of young people in particular who are on social media all the time, but not all of them develop body image issues. So I think it, you have to look at the, the individual's vulnerabilities and, and how that may interact with the qualities of the food they're eating. And that's why I find it hard to say, you know, well, sugar is addictive, alcohol is addictive. It's addictive to people who are vulnerable. Well, and don't you think genetics have a role to play in that as well? Yeah, as I mentioned, we know that for eating disorders, if you have a family, a close family member with anorexia or bulimia, for anorexia, you're 12 times more likely to have anorexia and four times more likely to develop bulimia. And the genetics around addictions are also uh, pretty clear. But, you know, again, when we when we look at genetics, you can't change your, your genetics. You can't change your genes. What we can do is try not to pass those genes down to the next generation. And that's where intergenerational trauma then perpetuates things like um, alcohol use disorder or substance use disorder or the eating disorders. So we want to do the best and with the next generation to keep from having that pass from one generation to the next. Well, and how do you approach that intergenerational? Because, you know, it almost makes it acceptable for some people. At the Brain Performance Center, we work with a lot of depression and anxiety. And I've had clients say, well, you know, it just it just is what it is. My grandmother had it, my mom had it, or my dad had it, or... And that once it becomes, because it is passed down, I think that some people are more willing to accept it. Hmm. Well, I think when you think about the effects of trauma, the effects of trauma, as we've seen from the Adverse Childhood Experiences study, is that it increases the risk for depression, for anxiety, for alcohol use disorder, and so on. So, you know, in my case, my dad died of a heart attack when he was in his 50s. So that increases my risk for having a heart attack. But it doesn't mean that 100% of, you know, my father's children will have heart attacks like he did. So there's the risk, and then there's what triggers. And that's what epigenetics has shown us, that... Uh, lifestyle and trauma can turn on a gene like the gene for substance use disorders. And so if we can work with the next generation, starting from when they're born, to help them learn how to manage their emotions better, uh, to be able to make better choices, to uh, heal the brain, uh, which you know, we, we've seen a lot of models, including the model with stroke victims that, for example, repetitive movement 
is healing for the brain. We know that there are certain supplements that can help. And, you know, of course, uh, emotional regulation can help because many times people start using because they are anxious or uncomfortable with their emotions. And then that turns that gene on. Oh, I think everybody out there is at some point medicated, self-medicated, because they're struggling with something or they're, they're going through something. And I don't wish it on everybody, but I think everybody out there has had some emotional trauma. I think it's, you know, my dad died when I was 12. Your dad died when he was young. I mean, we all have trauma in our life. And particularly, I mean, how are the modern day stress and lifestyle habits related to the trauma and related to all the medical problems? Well, I think, again, we have to go back to the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, which showed that uh, trauma increases the risk for all of the top chronic diseases in, in, in the world and in our country. And those include depression, anxiety, but also uh, heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, cancer, et cetera. So all of that is there. And those genes can be turned on, but they can also be turned off. So we can't say, oh, well, genetics is destiny. I think we, we need to particularly have better care for our children, uh, many of whom, you know, have, uh, are experiencing trauma as we speak because people haven't learned from the past. And so, you know, to be able to interrupt that cycle, we really have to put in the effort to be more accepting of our children, to teach them ways of managing their emotions, uh, to help protect them from trauma in their own lives, and so on. Well, it, it, let's talk about trauma, because and how you turn, how do you turn that gene off? I mean, we all know how, what what can trigger it or turn it on, but how do you turn it off? Is it what you eat? Is it how much you sleep? Is it who you hang out with? Is it your lifestyle habits? I'm, and, and I'm sure there's that it touches a little bit of all of that. But for our listeners out there that think, gosh, I want to turn that off. What's the first thing you tell them? When you think about turning the gene off, you have to think about how can I be more protective of my own children, my grandchildren, and so on. And this is something that I talked about in my TEDx Pleasant Grove talk, where I said that in my family, my siblings and I kind of got together and talked about this and talked about what we could do to help the next generation coming up um, be more resilient to trauma. Now, some people are just born naturally resilient. Um, I, I feel like I'm one of the lucky ones. Um, but not everybody is, and you don't have to be born resilient. You can teach resilience. So it's really important to teach children how to be resilient. And I think many parents think that, you know, they're like what they call the drone parents, what we used to call the helicopter parents. They think if they just, you know, put their kid in bubble wrap and don't let them experience any disappointments or any upsets, etc., that that will protect them. And it's just the opposite because the brain has to have small experiences to build on small stressful experiences and learn how to deal with those to build on how do we deal with bigger stressful experiences. So 
if you're protecting your kid from any kind of stress, then you're not allowing their brain to develop the resilience that they need to avoid getting into trouble later in adult life. So it's just like building the immune system. You know, you have to, uh, I'm a recent grandma and it's interesting to me because my son was like, well, we're, we don't want her around other kids. I'm like, how do you build your immune system? You know, if you keep her all by herself. And he's like, I'm like, think back to your childhood. And he's like, yeah, you're right. <laughs> exactly. You know, I think uh, I've, I've read a lot of books on it. I've heard a lot of people speak about that. And they encourage parents to let their kids play in the dirt. That's how you build the immune system, to have give your kid a pet because that's how you build the immune system. And obviously to let them be around other people. I, I can completely understand that parents today who may have newborns or young children may be terrified of letting them be around other people because of the epidemics that are growing. You know, we, we're calling a, a triple epidemic now with the flu and respiratory syncytial virus and what's left of COVID. And of course, that's very, very frightening. So I think you have to use caution and, and also, you know, take the advice of your um, your pediatrician to get the appropriate immunizations. But in the long run, you can't keep children from having exposure to any germs at all. So I think that's important to know and, you know, to relax a little bit and recognize that some some germs are good because it gives them that boost to their immune system. And so, and that's what I heard you say with stress. You know, we're all going to have stress in our life. And so letting your kids manage a little bit of stress, of course, age-appropriate stress, but that actually helps them build their capacities and knows, and they know how to do that. So, yeah. it, you know, that the lifestyle habits and lifestyle choices – I have found to be one of the hardest subjects to really convince people to change. Well, in terms of stress, we know that uh, good, healthy stress is definitely something that children should be exposed to as long as they have some kind of adult support. And even difficult stress, like losing a parent, is, you know, children can get through that if, as long as they have good parental or caretaker support, but it's the type of stress which we call toxic stress, which is what turns the genes for addiction and, and depression on. And toxic stress is prolonged or serious stress like abuse, neglect, and so on without any um, parental support. So I think the role of the parent should be to support children in learning how to deal with stress, not to take over and deal with it themselves and let the children just sit on the sidelines. Um, but when we get to toxic stress, the only way around that is is really to be able to, you know, protect children from as the best of our ability from uh, neglect and and abuse. And that's, you know, I think that's what, what many parents explain why they become drone parents, because they are so afraid of their child being caught up in, you know, a bad situation. But I think we just have to be reasonable, you know, be aware of what their, who their friends are. I mean, I was always the 
the mom whose kids brought their, their friends to the house to play. And I love that because I, when they were in the car, I could hear what they were talking about. They didn't even know I was listening, but, but I was. And then when they were at my house, you know, I could supervise them. So I think it's really important that we, you know, we have some supervision of children, but not completely keeping them from experiencing any stress. Oh, it's all about balance and boundaries. Yes, it is. <laughs> in particular, is the big one. And, and that, that's really a problem for many people that they don't know what boundaries are or when to put them in place or even maybe even have them in their own lives. I deal. We deal with a lot of that at the Brain Performance Center. And, you know, if you've but you have to realize if you haven't grown up with boundaries and it's a new concept when you're in your late 20s or early 30s or, or, or later in life, it's really a lot harder to be able to put them in place and respect them. Yeah, and I think, you know, poor boundaries often result from traumatic experiences where you develop certain beliefs like I'm not a good I'm not good enough or I'm not worthy or um, I'm unlovable. And when you have those those kinds of beliefs that come out of particularly out of childhood trauma, uh, then the boundaries are very difficult because number one, you're about if you've been in a childhood trauma situation, your boundaries have already been violated. So now you have to you know, realize as an adult, like, how do I put those boundaries back up? And how do I get people to respect them? And even adults, I find, have a hard time. They're worried that people won't like them if they say no, or they're worried that their boss will fire them if they say, you know, no, I'm not going to work overtime anymore. And, and on and on to other relationships as well. So, yeah, it is much more difficult as you get older to learn how to put your boundaries down. But it's something that I work with my clients who have food addiction, emotional eating, and, and binge eating. In, in my program, the Anchor Program, that's one of the biggest things we work on. And often they, they are people who are in their 60s or 70s who never really learned how to set boundaries. So I'm very interested in the Anchor Program, and that's an online community that you created, correct? Well, it's not a community. It's a program. It's an online program for people with binge eating, food addiction, and emotional eating. And I basically work with women, all age groups. My youngest, I think, was 19, and the oldest was probably in her early 70s. And we, uh, you know, I have an online curriculum, which kind of teaches a lot of the concepts that I feel have worked for my patients with those disorders. And then we we meet on Zoom uh, initially once a week and then every two weeks. And I also work with a team of um, registered dietitians. We don't work on dieting, so I don't want people to think that I'm a diet program because I'm not. The reason I work with dietitians is so they can help my clients um, change their relationship with food and have a healthier relationship with food and with their bodies. And so we work on understanding, you know, the impact of trauma and how it leads to these negative core beliefs 
And then what can we do to get to those root causes and, and help people move through them so that they aren't so stuck around food and body image? Well, you know, we all have self-defeating thoughts. Every At some point, we all do. And sometimes, you know, it's the should. We have the shoulds. I hate the shoulds. <laughs> and I hate they have these two little friends called shame and blame. I hate them more because the shoulds don't do anything for us. Now, the coulds are a lot better alternative. And it's, you know, that black or white, all or nothing thinking sometimes it comes into play. And if if you're striving for, for perfection and everything has to be perfect, good luck, because that's just that's awful hard to achieve. Do you see a lot of that all or nothing thinking in yeah. the work you do? Yeah, black and white thinking is very, very common in people with substance use disorders and with eating disorders. And, you know, I think it's really important for people to be able to identify uh, their black and white thinking and recognize that, you know, again, it comes out of usual, usually childhood adversity, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't work as adults. We have to kind of live a little bit more in the gray zone rather than waiting for everything to be perfect, all good, and trying to always avoid things being, you know, all bad. And I think that's really a struggle. And even in relationships, you know, I have a lot of patients who, um, you know, have negative relationships with a parent or a sister. And obviously that if that is uh, protective of them, they need to, you know, hold on to that. But many times it's because of things that have happened long, long time ago that may be sort of, you know, in the realm of everybody makes mistakes in which case, um, often my patients get stuck in judging that and, you know, can never really get close again to anybody else in their lives. And that's very understandable. But unless the people in your lives are harming you, it's useful to have social support. That's really one of the most important things that help with resilience. And so we have to really stop and, and ask ourselves, you know, was this harm that was done, was this mistake that maybe my mother made 10 years ago really important for me to hold on to right now? And I know a lot of people have negative thoughts, but when we talk about beliefs, those things are things we don't always even recognize. They're like the operating system in our computer. And the operating system may be like, I'm unlovable or I'm not good enough. And you may not even have that thought or recognize the thought, but in the background, your choices are made from that place of I'm not good enough, or your relationships are chosen from that place of I'm not good enough. So you can imagine if that's where you are about yourself, how difficult it is to have, for example, a healthy relationship with anyone else because you don't have one with yourself. Well, and, and sometimes I have found with my clients that it's not even that what they're dealing with is on a conscious level. It's more the subconscious. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we'll get that thought. It'll come in our mind. and we'll, Oh, I can't deal with that right now. And we'll push it down. And that's okay because it'll be right back. So I think the subconscious 
it's amazing to me that our brain every second can take in 11 million bits of data. And research says that somewhere between 40 and 126 can be held on a conscious level. Personally, I think it's 40, but it doesn't matter. We don't have to do the math. Where does it all go? It goes into that subconscious. And I know you talk a lot about the body and the brain connection. And I think that subconscious is what is one of the ways that it keeps that connection between the body and the brain, not necessarily in a good way, but keeps it strong. Yeah. Well, it definitely keeps it doing something. I'm not sure if it's a strengthener or not, but I really believe that we, we need to bring those uh, thoughts and beliefs to the surface whenever possible. And then, you know, to from our place in adulthood, recognize that some of those thoughts and beliefs were formed when we were children and we didn't have, you know, the knowledge and the uh, resilience and the skill set that we have as adults. And once we're able to bring it to the surface and deal with them from our adult perspective, it's a lot more effective to do that than to continue to carry around uh, beliefs that that harm you, that hold you back, that keep you stuck, particularly in eating disorders. You know, so many of my patients are very um, successful in all areas of their careers, their home life, they're with their children. But the food and body image stuff is the one area that they feel that they've failed at. And it continues to, they continue to stay stuck in that arena. Well, and it's, I think that part of that is because of that subconscious. And that's one of the things that the Brain Performance Center, we've seen, if you can calm that brain down, whether it's with neurofeedback or creating neuroplasticity in the brain or neuromodulation, it's amazing how you'll see, see people become more accepting of what they're dealing with on a conscious level. And I think that... Uh, We've talked a lot about trauma, and we will. When we come back from the break, we'll talk some more. Because I think we've all had emotional trauma. Many of us have had physical trauma. We've all had stress. After the last two to three years, I, and I'm not sure that stress level is ever going to return to a low level. So it, there's a lot that we all have to deal with. And it's so good to have you on the show, Dr. Ross, because you're an MD. But you come at it that that medical world from a different perspective. You come at it from the integrative medicine side. And that's something that I see as the future. It's and I've never and I have a natural bias. Medications never work for me personally. So it's never been my first line of treatment for my children, my family, for clients or anything. So, you know, when we come back from break, I'd really love to, to learn more about how you take that integrative medicine approach and how you apply it. God, I'm not I'm not saying one is better than than the other. I'm just saying I what I've seen work the best is more the approach that you're taking, the integrative medicine approach. So stay with us. We'll be back and we can learn a lot more. We'll be back after these messages. 
walked into a room on a mission to get something and totally forgot what you went in there for? I do it all the time, which makes me feel like a total civ head, as the Brits would say. Some might blame it on old age, but a recent study reported in the Quarterly Journal of Experimental Psychology suggests the simple act of passing through a doorway causes memory lapses. It appears the brain regards a doorway as an event boundary and effectively files away whatever you were thinking about as soon as you step through. What's a word for the feeling your thoughts are being stolen? Nucleptia. So, what's the solution? Try carrying an object that reminds you of the task. For example, if you go into another room to get a pair of scissors, carry the object you want to cut. It's words you never I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. So in the first half of the show, we've talked a lot about how trauma, childhood trauma, stays with us and influences all the way through life. And there's emotional trauma, there's physical trauma, and, and, and it's all around us. Dr. Ross, could you please help our listeners understand more, a little bit about how trauma is defined? Yeah, well, as I mentioned earlier, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, which is started over 20 years ago and is now being run by the Centers for Disease Control, looked at 17,000 people, which for your listeners is a huge number of people to be in a research study. So it's, it's a really strong study. And that study showed us that there were uh, certain childhood, adverse childhood experiences that increased the risk for depression, anxiety, um, having a higher body mass index, um, even things like uh, heart disease, lung disease, cancer, and diabetes. And the kinds of adverse childhood experiences they looked at were things like uh, being having a family member who has substance use disorder, a family member who has a mental illness, uh, someone in the family who's incarcerated, uh, divorce or separation in the family, and then the ones that we always think about, which are physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, uh, any kind of neglect, whether it be physical or emotional. And I think neglect is one of the things that people think, ah, you know, poo, that's no big deal. But I have so many clients who have experience, especially in emotional neglect, but often physical neglect being um, if you had a, a parent who was a, maybe a single parent and maybe had a mental illness, then the oldest child was the one who had to find food for, for her younger siblings. And there wasn't always food on the table. They may have lived in poverty, uh, may have lived in a food desert. So some of those factors are pretty important as adversity uh, for a child because, you know, children don't have a lot of ways of, children don't have a DoorDash account, let's put it that way. <laughs> so, and, and and for most of us, there was no DoorDash back in the day. So I think those are some of the things. Now, the ACE study or Adverse Childhood Experiences study didn't look at other things that we now know are traumatic for children, such as bullying, which has become 
such a huge problem and particularly cyber bullying. You know, we have, uh, I think Monica Lewinsky has made it her, um, I think her program or, or her, uh, what she speaks on is how, how much she was bullied um, after uh, the Clinton situation and how that bullying can drive kids to suicide. And we know so many, many different accounts where that has happened. And I think it's really important for parents and teachers to take bullying more seriously. I think a lot of times parents think, oh, well, just toughen up, you know, uh, it's no big deal. They just, you know, harassing you, but just get tough. But not everybody has that resilience and they have to learn it. And being harassed on a daily basis or threatened on a daily basis does not enable you to develop resilience. It's the opposite. Well, you know, and resilience is something that I talk a lot about at the Brain Performance Center. And I know as long as things are going my way, everything is good. My resilience is strong. But when I start to feel vulnerable, things aren't necessarily going my way, then I I, I can see that my resilience really starts to slide down a little bit. I'm more sensitive to criticism. I'm more responsive. Maybe I'm more irritable. And, you know, one of the things I try to do is help people build their resilience. And I have a model that I use talking about a sailboat, trying to get out into the water and, you know, all the the weaknesses that we can have and what's surrounding in the water. How do you approach resilience with your clients? Yeah, for me, I I think of resilience as starting with the deeper work that we need to do, which is to identify the root causes of uh, addictions, food addiction, um, binge eating and emotional eating. So in the anchor program, we really work on recognizing that the way that we use food and our body image issues mainly come from this, you know, childhood adversity or childhood trauma. Uh, And when I say childhood, I mean less than 18 years of age. And so once we get to the root cause of that and work on healing that, there is a natural resilience that can result. But also, you know, I work to teach um, my clients different skills that will help them be more resilient. But I think, you know, it's hard to be resilient when your operating system keeps telling you, defaulting to you know, I'm I'm not a, I'm not good enough. For example, so you can th- put a band-aid on it and say, Oh yeah, I'm going to learn resilience. But if that operating system is still in 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 your you know mental computer, it doesn't do much. It's like a band-aid on an open wound. So we want to heal the wound and then help people strengthen their ability to regulate their emotions and skills to deal with stress and and the boundaries to set so that they don't keep putting themselves in dangerous situations. And that's oftentimes hard to do. Yeah, it's, I, I think it's very difficult to do. It's a lot easier if we could, you know, have this kind of teaching in schools when kids are young. Um, but I, I can't even think of putting something more on the teachers who are already 
you know, overburdened and under-supported. So, and, and for many parents, they never learned it themselves. And so they don't know how to teach it to their children. And we have, you know, we have parents who may have um, their own struggles with uh, mental health issues or with eating disorders or addictions, especially now, you know, since the opiate ep epidemic and we, we reached the 100,000 mark of people who have died from overdoses. And I think many of us have seen pictures of, uh, you know, children who were in cars or in houses where their parents were using and overdosed and they were left alone. And so I think we have a lot of, you know, just social issues to deal with that are being not, you know, we're, I think our president now is trying to work on that, um, but it's been a long time coming. And so being able to support parents as they did with that, I think they called the uh, parental credit or wherever the, at the beginning of the pandemic, that credit raised 50% um, of children out of poverty. And that's so important. The Adverse Childhood Experiences study, the CDC has now recognized that there are also adverse community experiences that then can lead to the same kinds of risk. And those are things like poverty, uh, feeling like there's no hope or being exposed to community violence. Uh, and I don't remember the whole list, but uh, whenever you think of children being in, in environments where their lives are under threat or their well-being is under threat, uh, that's something that we need to support parents of all backgrounds in helping their children to have enough food to eat, to be able to have clothes for school, and you know, just the minimum that most Americans take for granted. I think it's so important that we recognize how the, it's just the basics. It's just having a place to sleep, a warm place to sleep, having food in our belly, having clean clothes to wear. It, those basic things are so necessary for us to be able to keep our mental health. And mental health is brain health. And brain health is, you know, the brain's an organ just like the heart. And I think the sooner we can start to recognize that we've got to take care of our of our mental health like we take care of our physical health, we'll see a shift in our thinking. Yeah. And, you know, the integrative medicine approach is really about looking at the, the whole picture, you know, looking at how do we heal body, mind and spirit. Um, in medicine in general, we mainly look at the body as kind of like, oh, we're going to take our car into the mechanic and they're going to tune us up and everything will be fine. Well, unfortunately, the body is not a mechanical organism. It's got a lot of um, subtlety and, and we really need to help, especially young physicians coming out of training to understand that holistic approach of you know, the body can't be well if the mind isn't well and if the spirit isn't well. So many times, especially during the last few years, we've had so many young people fall into despair and isolation because of the pandemic. And I think it's really important for us to be able to support them now to come back out and get back into their lives and get back at school. And we know that school performance has, has slipped dramatically. I mean, I think it was shocking for 
most of us to see the statistics that uh, whether it be, you know, being on Zoom for school or not having the access to that for school, that many children's performance in, in math and English and, and so on has really gone downhill. And we were already below many of the Western countries, and now we're probably even farther behind. So there has to be some resolve within our country to support each other in helping our children grow up in a way that's healthier and so that, that we don't have to keep going through this uh, spiral of, you know, trauma and adversity for children and that we can kind of interrupt that cycle for the next generations. And maybe it'll take two generations or even three, but it's better to work on that now than to give up hope. I think you're right. I think that if we if we don't keep trying and we lose hope, then we're then we're nowhere. We're absolutely nowhere. And that's what's important that we why we talk about these types of things on this show in your head is so that people's awareness can be raised and everybody, everybody's got trauma in their family. And just stopping and, and asking yourself, you said that you and your siblings had a big conversation around this. How do we stop this? How hard was that to do? Well, I think my siblings are luckily pretty evolved in their thinking, and all of them, all of us had, have commented on the over the years about the losses in each generation, you know, the losses to suicide, to mental illness, to, you know, health problems, and, you know, being African American, we can date a lot of that back to uh, the losses, you know, during slavery and the medical issues that are a result of that level of adversity. So I think we were all kind of aware, but not really adding them up and thinking, oh, wow, it's happening to our family. So when I um, did that TEDx Pleasant Grove talk, I looked at my family tree before that, and we could just see that in every generation we lost at least one amazing, wonderful human being in our family. And we started thinking, what could we, what could really, we really do about it? So I sent out the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study quiz, which you can find online nowadays, and asked each of my net nieces and nephews to take the quiz and to take it for their children as well, to see where they st stood. Because uh, a high score on the ACE quiz shows, particularly if you have more than four uh, adverse childhood experiences, it can show that, you know, your risk for depression, anxiety, all of these other things is even higher. So when you say adverse experience, could, could I, and I'm just trying to understand that, could that be as simple as the dog died? Yeah, well, when I say adverse experiences, I'm talking about the study, the CDC study. And as I mentioned at the beginning of the second part, you know, they only studied a specific number of childhood adversities, but they didn't include a lot of things that could be serious. So loss of a dog, loss of a dog where you have no parental support could be very difficult for a child to deal with. But again, you have to recognize we all have stressors and the stressors that really increase your risk are toxic stressors with prolonged, serious stress, like, you know, abuse, neglect, 
uh, losses without support from a parent or caregiver. Boy, parental support and having a support system is becoming more and more important just throughout listening to our talk today, because when you don't have that support, you don't have that safe place. How do you how do you grow up in a safe place? Well, you know, there are many, many children who don't have a safe place growing up. And some of those have just innate resilience. They're just lucky. They were born resilient. And, you know, I'm sure you've read about them. I remember reading about the woman whose mother had a very serious um, drug addiction. And uh, she grew up in poverty. And But she had one person, a neighbor, who would feed her and would talk to her. And all it takes is one person, and that could be a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, or it could be a parent. But if the parents aren't able, if we as families can come together and provide that support to our children, grandchildren, nieces and nephews, that helps. Because it only takes one. And this young lady went on to go to Harvard and get a degree and so on and so forth. So wherever we can help children, it's in our best interest to do so, because otherwise, without that safe place, children grow up either in their response to not having a safe place, which is a natural response, is to either be angry or combative or to uh, get involved with gangs, which make them feel like they're part of a family, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, when you look at society as a whole, despite our politics and, and all the divisions in our country, if you think about it, there's nobody who's more deserving of care and protection than children. We may have arguments with the behaviors that adults take, but you really can't argue with protecting children because every child you protect is one less person who's going to end up in jail or end up hurting someone else or joining a gang, et cetera, et cetera, uh, or, you know, being a drain on the system. So there have been many, many uh, types of projects where we've used money to help protect children and to teach parents how to take care of children in a better way. Uh, but we seem to lack the national will to really come together and protect our children. Well, thank you for making the point that it doesn't necessarily have to be a mother or a father, that if you see a child in your neighborhood and you can see that child is struggling, you know, just to provide an after a snack after school when you know they're going home to an empty house. I can't tell you how many clients have told me that about one person in their life that was really pivotal. It was where they it was a game changer for them. Absolutely. And many times it was not within their direct family. Mm-hmm. That's right. Absolutely. And I've I've heard the same stories from my parents. It, it could have been like for me, it was my grandmother. I lived with my grandmother a couple of years and I stayed with her every summer. And I always felt like she was my safe place. And that gave me a lot of you know resilience and helped to spur me on to do the things I wanted to do. But I have so many so many patients who come into the anchor program who never had that in their lives. You know, their 
for whatever reason, either parents weren't there or they were not supportive at all. And now they have to, you know, live with that and find a way to heal from that. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the anchor program because we've touched on it a couple of times during the show. And it's, it, it did my heart good to see that you're bringing this type of care out, not out of, but making this type of care also available without going to an inpatient facility. Well, you know, I've worked in a number of inpatient facilities, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that if you need that. But what I saw was so many uh, parents in particular who were having to mortgage their houses or go dig into their retirement in order to, uh, you know, pay for these 30-day programs. And we know for substance use disorders and eating disorders, uh, unless someone needs to be inpatient, uh, 30 days is not enough to get well. And so I really got frustrated with seeing that over and over and felt like maybe if I could, you know, develop a program that people could do that lasted long enough for them to really get the work done, that that might be helpful. So the programs that I do, the anchor program starts with a 12-week intensive where we have that online curriculum that educates them and also have like a body, mind, spirit exercise that they do. And then we meet once a week on Zoom and work on all of the issues we've been talking about. And after the 12-week intensive, they go into a six-month program where we meet every two weeks and also have an online curriculum. And then from there, we have an alumni group, which meets once a month. So the idea is do the work now instead of constantly cycling. What most of my patients do is cycle from one diet program to another, to another, to another. And they may stick with it for a few months and then boom, they're out there on their own and they think it's all about the weight and they're told even by physicians that, you know, all of your problems would be solved if you just lose weight. And that's not really true. And so what I want to do is to help them understand what it really takes to get well and to provide the support they need for as long as they need to help them get there. So that's that's what we do in the anchor program. It's, it's really been, for me, I, I would say I wish I could, you know, do it for free because I love doing it so much and I love the people you know the clients who come to me uh, we, we just you know have uh, had good experiences for the most part together and um, they you know a lot of testimonials showing that they've made uh, incredible progress in their lives. Well I think you know the, the love in your heart is very very clear when I hear the words you know I wish I could do it for free. Um, <laughs> And unfortunately, we can't. But just just having that much love in your heart, people feel that. And they yep. feel that. And I love the fact that, you know, it's honestly, how can anybody be, be well from a problem that you probably have suffered with for over a decade after 30 days of treatment? I'm impressed that your program goes on to six months because that gets that gives people just a little bit of wiggle room so that they can feel like that they can really start to feel like I can do this 
that's and that's step right. one. Yeah, that's it. That's the important part because I think the media and and the medical profession tell us, oh well, just you know, get on this new diet, start doing intermittent fasting, do the paleo, you know, do the keto, and I would say 100% of my patients have been on five or more diets in their lives and usually hundreds or you know tens of diets and it hasn't solved their problem so you know i'm offering a deeper more realistic solution for those who are ready to do that kind of work and not everybody is but i'm hoping to find my group who are tired of being on the diet treadmill and ready to actually find resolution for the problem and find freedom around food and to stop obsessing about their body. Well, and and having that online, having it where anybody and everybody could access it um, just makes it so, and that's the world that the younger generation lives in. Absolutely. And may not be the world that, that, you know, I live in, although I'm finishing up a PhD and I've done all that online. So yeah. that's a, that's opened up my eyes. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a place we're all going to have to learn to live on because, you know, these uh, pandemics and epidemics are not going to go away. No, they're not. And we've got about three minutes left. So let's spend a, a little bit of time telling people where they can find you because I know you are online. Sure. Well, you can find out more about the Anchor Program at anchorprogram.com, and that's A-N-C-H-O-R program.com. If you want to learn more about me or my uh, medical practice where I see uh, people for substance use disorders and eating disorders, um, you can go to my website at carolynrossmd.com. That's C-A-R-O-L-Y-N-R-O-S-S-M-D.com. And I want to thank you, Lee, for having me on your show. It's been really great to, to talk, with, talk with you. Well, thank you so much for being with me. And I feel like eating disorders is a subject that we haven't touched enough on. I think that people, the general public, doesn't realize, one, how common they are, and two, how dangerous they are. So in our last couple of minutes, if there are any pieces of advice for people that are out there that suspect they have a family member that has a de- eating disorder, what's their one takeaway? Uh, sit down with your family member and just let them know what you've observed and what your fears are for them and offer your support. Not everybody's ready when you first talk to them, but as long as they know that you care, uh, they will likely come to you when they are ready. Well, I think that's, you know, very simple. Be transparent, be open, be honest. And you know and I know sometimes as simple as that sounds, that can be really, really hard for for families to do. And sometimes just finding the time in today's crazy world can be hard. So thank you so much. And, you know, I mentioned in the beginning that your third book, The Food Addiction Recovery Workbook, is out there. And if they go to foodaddictionrecoveryworkbook.com, they can find it there, right? Yeah, they can get a free copy. I
behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, TogiNet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and thebrainperformancecenter.com. Thank you.